Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to invite you this morning to turn to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading just the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we draw with confidence to your throne of grace and ask that you would uh, impart us with your Holy Spirit this morning that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, that the words that are spoken this morning, we pray, would be pleasing to you. We pray, God, that we would be edified as a church and blessed and that you would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when I was up here in... June, we, I had the opportunity to speak a little bit about God's law, and I, I attempted to kind of lay some groundwork for understanding uh, God's law. Specifically, we started by talking about the perpetual obligation to God's law, the idea that mankind, past, present, and future, specifically speaking of uh, God's law, moral law in the form of the Ten Commandments, are an obligation for us. Um, both believers and unbelievers. And then we kind of walk through the uh, three uses of the law. The, the idea that the law is a tutor that, that brings the unbeliever heart to recognize their state or their estate before God and turn to Christ for salvation. We talked about the civil use of the law, the, the idea that the law, God's moral law, restrains the evil of men, even unbelieving men. And then the Final is that didactive or normative use of the law, where, whereby God uh, imparts knowledge uh, to believers and shows them what's pleasing to him. Now, understanding the importance of God's law and, and how it relates to but is distinct from his grace is a critical part uh, as for growing as a Christian. As, as I've said before, having a deeper understanding of God's law allows us to have a more full understanding of his grace. So what I'd like to do today is kind of take that general understanding of God's moral law and hone in a little closer by looking at the law itself. Just like so much of God's word, we can benefit from a, a, a large overview and there's no depth to the end if you want to dig there's no bottom to the well, so to speak, but I want to try to find a little bit of a middle ground, not dig so deep that I can't dig myself out. Um, and so I, I thought we could just start by just taking a look at the first commandment itself. Now, the title commandment is, is actually not used here in Exodus chapter 20, what we just read, uh, but it's not a convention that was just made up for easy reference. It's the title that was given to, to the verses later in Exodus 34, verse 28. 
Speaking of Moses, it says, So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Most uh, references that I, I read and looked through kind of agreed that the, the word commandments is probably better translated as ten words. And uh, was translated in the Greek as uh, Decalogoi, which is where uh, you'll often hear the Ten Commandments called the Decalogue. It's just ten words in Greek. Uh, so the, the point here being that the Ten Commandments, you might hear them also referenced as the ten words or as the Decalogue. However, they're, they're not ordinary words. They're specific ten words, that, and they're words that were spoken from the mouth of God. They were spoken to his people and are appropriately called commandments because God commands obedience. He commands obedience to his law. We see it in Deuteronomy 27, 26, when he pronounces curses on anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. And the Apostle Paul takes up this idea later in Galatians, uh, specifically in Galatians 3.10, to explain that the righteous must live by faith because all of us who are found who don't live by faith are found wanting when, we, when we're measured up to the righteous requirements of the law. And if we're to rely on law keeping for our justification, then we stand before God cursed by the very law that we're unable to keep. And understanding that the, the Ten Commandments are not just guidelines, but, but are commands of God requiring perfect obedience is important when we think about our justification and, and the reality that we see in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't be justified by our law keeping. But our, our, justification, uh, our justification before God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. However, our inability to keep God's law does not diminish the potency of the command. While God's law has no place in our lives for justification, it's invaluable for our sanctification. Because while keeping God's law does not earn us a right standing with him, it, it does not follow that keeping God's law has no benefit to us. And in fact, we know, and, and I hope to kind of show today, that God's law was commanded for our good. Joe actually talked a little bit about that this morning, that uh, God's command is uh, a way of loving us. And, and, and we'll explore that a little more closely. God's law is ultimately a blessing to his people. Hopefully, um, we'll see that as we look in greater detail at the first commandment. And we're going to look at the first commandment through in the way of three observations. And, and I, I say the, the first commandment, but we're really looking at the, the prologue to the first commandment and the commandment itself. So the first observation that I'd like, to, I'd like to make is that the commandment comes from a unique God. The, the preface of the Ten Commandments is, is God stating who he is. In our translation, he simply states, I am the Lord, your God. J.I. Packer had helpful words. He said, when God gave Israel the commandments on Sinai, he introduced them by introducing himself. What God is and has done determines what his people must be and do. So study of the Decalogue should start by seeing what it tells us about God. So God introduces himself here as the Lord your God. 
In most of our translations, it uses the name Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps, in all capital letters. It's to indicate the name Yahweh, the great I Am of Scripture. And this is the, the name by which God's people are to know him by. God makes it clear in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, there's that name Yahweh again, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. And, it, and if his name isn't enough here, he also points in this prologue, he points to his deeds. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And in my next observation, we'll talk about some of the implications of, of that. But for the moment, I want you to see just that this is not a God. This is the true and living God. As John Mackey points out, here, when he relays the fact that, that this is the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt, um, he says, in effect, this is a summary of all that Moses has recorded before it, not only in Exodus, but in Genesis 2. The history of the world is the prologue to the Lord's sovereign demands on his people. The Lord has freed them from domination by others, not to lead them in a life of self-gratification, but one dedicated to his service. It is the God of salvation who sovereignly commands his people how they should live. So the important thing that we see here is that the God that gave us the commandments is by no means a generic God. He's the unique covenant-keeping God of Israel. He's the God of salvation. This God is the God that Solomon spoke about in 2 Kings 8, 22-23. When Solomon stood before the assembly of Israel... And he had his hand reached out towards heaven and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And we see the other side of, of this idea in Psalm 96, 5, where it says that all the gods of the heavens are worthless idols. And that... This is a common mistake in kind of well-meaning ecumenical circles when they try to reach out and evangelize people of other religions. And, and I'm sure you've heard similar remarks to this where someone says to uh, a Muslim or some, someone uh, like that, that we all worship the same God, we just call him by different names. And, and that's the idea that I think this commandment doesn't allow for. Um, this is usually an idea, I think, pulled from Acts 17. If you remember when Paul is on Mars Hill and the, uh, the men of, he's, he's talking to the men of Athens because they had an altar that was dedicated to the unknown God. And he says to them at the end of verse uh, 23 in Acts 17, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And they, they kind of take this as Paul saying, it doesn't matter what you call him, if you're worshiping a God, then you're worshiping the God. But this, this just doesn't follow in the text at all, and it misses Paul's point completely. Not, not to mention it, it ignores the, the context of his statements. 
And we know this if for no other reason than a few verses later in Acts 17, Paul says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So Paul makes it clear that their, their worship of the unknown God was done in ignorance. And then he calls them to repentance of their ignorance. If this was just uh, another way of worshiping the same God, then they wouldn't have a need to repent because they were worshiping the, the true God of Israel. But in this case, call, Paul calls them to repentance. So what our verse points out very clearly is that worshiping a God is not enough. We have to worship the God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 4.39, Therefore know today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other and again, he says in Deuteronomy 33, 26, there is none like the God of Jeshurun. And Jeshurun here is just a poetic name for the people of Israel. It says there's none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are everlasting arms. We worship a unique God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and. Another observation Packer in these verses uh, from J.I. Packer is that in the Old Testament times, the Old Testament times refer Abraham's seed through Isaac and Jacob, now embraces all who are Abraham's seed through Christ by faith. So all we who trust Jesus Christ as our Savior must realize that according to the covenant that Jesus mediates, God stands pledged to bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And obedient faithfulness to him as our Father through Christ and our husband in the covenant must henceforth be the rule of our lives. So we're Abraham's seed through Christ by faith. Therefore, this command to the people of Israel is a command to all of us as Christians. We're called to a life of obedience to God, the unique covenant-keeping God of Israel, and, and we're to obey the first commandment that we shall have no other gods before him. It's a, it's a command from him to you, not a suggestion from a generic God, but a command from the living God. And my, and my second observation is that this command is a personal command. And in a lot of ways, this observation highlights even further, further the uniqueness of our God, Yahweh, the I am God. It, it would have been enough for him to say, I am the Lord, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. In much the same way that I think it's perfectly legitimate for a father to say to his child, you'll obey me because I'm your father and that's what I told you to do. But, but God does not just assert his authority by saying, I am who I am. But he also points to his unique relationship with his people by adding the words, your God. I am your God. He, he's not like the gods that, that we create in our minds. He's not some impersonal deity He's the personal God, and this is a personal command. And that's why there's a clear I and a you in this passage. I am the Lord, and then he commands you to do something. And we need to make it clear also that the you that, that we're talking about here, uh, that, that God is pointing to, is a personal you and not merely a collective you. And it's, it's true, he's addressing the people as a whole. 
But again, as John Mackey points out, it's unlikely that this you is to be understood as a collective usage for the nation as a whole. That makes for a very awkward interpretation of your father and your mother or your neighbor's wife. These commands, though spoken to the nation as a whole, are addressed to each of them individually. The response that is required is a personal one. So these commands are spoken by a personal God who has a personal relationship with his people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is not some cosmic it out there in the universe. He's the I who relates to his people, you. The implication for this in the, introduc- in the introduction to the commandments are, are pretty important. These commandments that we have no other God before him is a command out of a place of a loving relationship. So we can see that God laying out these commands is not so that he can take pleasure in his dominion over us, but rather his commands are an act of loving kindness that is freely given to us. And the implications for that understanding should drive us to obey God's commands, not for what we can get out of him, but rather as a creature's loving response to the love of their heavenly father. We love him because he first loved us. And this is the, the ideal that all, all loving parents strive for in their homes. A parent doesn't make a rule for their kids to follow because they love to have control. But rather, parents set boundaries and make rules for their children because they love them and they want what's best for them. And what every parent strives for in their home is not simply to create a home where their children obey them, but to create a home where the children love the standard that's set up in the home. The children love the law of the home because they see the love that undergirds the law. And in the same way here, God has commanded a standard for us because he loves us. And as we see this further explained in our text, when we look at the declaration that follows it, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We talked about this briefly in our first point, but here I hope it better helps us understand the relationship that God has with his people. As I read early, John Mackey pointed out that really the Jesus is affirming that, uh, or not Jesus, but uh, the, the, the text here is summarizing the whole of Exodus and Genesis prior to this. And while that's helpful, I think it's even more helpful to step back one chapter from verse 20 to verse 19. And we see uh, in, in Exodus 19, verses 3 through 4, it says that Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Our God is a personal God and his commandments are not some sort of dictatorial edict from an unloving, egomaniacal deity. He, he's a God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he didn't just deliver Israel and send them a deliverer and set them on their way. He didn't just hope for a good outcome. No, he bore them on eagles' wings. As T. Esmond, Desmond Alexander explained, the language used here is highly personal, underlying the I-U relationship that exists between God 
and the Israelites. And, and additionally, I found Edmund P. Clowney's words very helpful. He said, God brought Israel to a trysting place with him in the wilderness. He said, I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He freed them from slavery in Egypt so that they could serve him as their Lord and God. The covenant God made with them at Sinai shows why he brought them there. He claimed Israel as his own so that he would be their God and they would be his people. This is the kind of God he identifies himself to be in the first commandment, a personal God who delivers, accompanies, and owns his people. And we see this idea further exemplified in the prophet Hosea. Again, we talked a little bit about Hosea this morning. Joe did in uh, Sunday school. But if you remember the early chapters of Hosea, the prophet uses his marriage with uh, his wife Gomer as a, uh, and her unfaithfulness and eventual restoration as a parable for God's relationship with Israel. And you see, God's relationship with his people is so personal that he can actually use a husband-wife relationship as a parable for it. Gomer has, as an unfaithful wife, sought out other lovers. It says so in Hosea 2.5. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. She didn't slip into sin. And that's the point I want to bring out here. She didn't, this wasn't something that she fell into. She wasn't being pursued by men that caused her to stumble. She sought it out. And in the same way, through Exodus and the story, uh, the story of Israel is not a story of ignorantly falling into sin. And probably if we look at the story of our lives, we don't see a history of this accidental falling into sin. But we see idolaters who are seeking out other gods. The context of Hosea is so similar to the context of Exodus. In Exodus, God's people seek to have their needs fulfilled by any means necessary. Whether it's turning back to Egypt or erecting a golden calf, it doesn't matter. They, they were harlots willing to serve and seek out any God that gives them what they want. In the case of Hosea, the people of the northern kingdom were seeking out Baal and worshiping the God of the Assyrians, likely for agricultural success and sensual fulfillment. And th but this is why Hosea speaks to us in the context of the Exodus. It's because the Hosea is really calling out to the northern kingdom about the first commandment. He's exegeting the events in Exodus in order that the northern kingdom could see that they're doing the same thing. He's calling them to repentance, to obedience to the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before you. And as he does this, he gives us great insight into the personal uh, nature of this command. This is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And Hosea expands on this even further by uh, using God's words in Hosea 2.14. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So if you remember, the, the wilderness that Hosea is talking about is the, is the wilderness at Sinai. If you remember the setting of the Ten Commandments, that God brought his people to the wilderness at Sinai, to the base of the mountain. And, and for what purpose did he bring his people there? Not to show his power over her, which was true enough, but rather, as Hosea explained, to speak tenderly to her. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. 
And specifically, we see this in the call of the first commandment, that we shall have no other gods before him. This is God speaking tenderly to us. This command is the tender mercies of a loving God, alluring us, speaking tenderly to us, that we shall have no other gods before him. So we see that the, the first commandment is the command of a unique God. It's, it's the command of a personal God. And finally, it's a definitive command. And, and before we go much further into this observation, we need to deal with kind of a common misunderstanding of this command. The, the misunderstanding centers around the word before. Most of the major translations use the word before me. And, and, and rightfully so, they're attempting to accurately represent was what was originally written. Unfortunately, I believe that th this has in some ways opened the door to a lot of misunderstandings and misapplications. Many have taken the words before me as to mean a set to take, have a sense of priority. It, it, I kind of liken it to some kind of race where this is like Jesus's way of giving everyone those like foam number one fingers. Like these are all these gods in a race and he's going to, he's going to be number one. And as his people were to ensure that, but that's not, that's not what the text is saying. And I think most people, when they hear that would dismiss that understanding out of hand and say, yeah, that's definitely not. And yet they, they accept the implications of that without hesitation. Remember when I was uh, young, I went to a, a large evangelical church. It was a, it was a good church. Um, so I don't say this to impugn any reputations, but it, they did all the plays, the Christmas pageants, the nativities, all that kind of stuff. And I was in one play called Angels Aware. And they, they had a way of summarizing the Ten Commandments in kind of a rhymy way that you would remember. And to this day, I still remember all ten of them. And as an aside, that might be a good encouragement to parents to catechize your children. Because um, I... I was probably eight years old. I don't even know how old I was. And I still remember the Ten Commandments because of that song. And so uh, it does stick with you. But the, the words of the song, it summarized the Ten Commandments in this way. It said, number one, it's just begun. God should be first in your life. And like I said, it, it, it's, it's helpful in a way, but it's actually, um, it, it misses the point completely. I don't know if you heard it, but God should be first in your life. It, it puts it out there as a sense of priority. That we should have no other God before me means, well, God should be first, and then the other gods should take second, third, fourth seats. But it's not just this one instance. This is a pervasive understanding throughout American evangelicalism, especially in what you might call that kind of rah-rah America Christianity, where they have these like life priority lists of, you know, God and then family and then uh, their country right underneath that. Or, you know, sometimes they co-opt the, the British battle cry of for king and country and they make it for God and country. And it, I don't think they're doing it to purposely subvert the first commandment, but it, ultimately that's what they're doing. It, it, it's okay to worship at the altar of America as long as you worship at the altar of God as well. It's okay to worship at the altar of your family as long as God's first. But... That's not what the commandment is calling us to. When the commandment says you shall have no other gods before God, 
It's not referencing priority. The problem is it, it's kind of difficult to translate. And when I was thinking through it, they, a lot of the versions used before me, uh, but the problem is before me has that other connotation, but so do a lot of other words. No other God besides me can mean multiple things as well. James G. Murphy said that before me is literally upon my face. It supposed those other gods to be set up before the true God as an antagonist in the eyes of God and as casting shade over his eternal being and incommunicable glory in the eyes of the worshiper. So when the words before me are used, it could literally be translated as upon my face. And it's best understood as meaning that we'll have no other gods in the presence of God. But even that has historically been misunderstood where some people will say the presence of God means the, the immediate presence of God in the temple or the immediate presence of God in the promised land. But, but even that doesn't make sense where we know that in Isaiah 66, 1, it says that thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And David affirms that the presence of God extends beyond the promised land when he says in Psalm 139, 7 through 10, where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in shale, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. The point here is that there is no place on the face of this earth where we can flee the presence of God. Therefore, there's no place on the face of this earth where this commandment does not apply to us. We shall have no other God set before God. But when I say that, the, that these words are definitive, I don't just re, re, uh, mean definitive in their geographical reach. I mean to say that there's no exception whatsoever. We're to have no other gods. The term other gods is not speaking of divine beings. For, uh, and we know that because it says in Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, remember this and be assured. I lost my place, sorry. Um, no, I didn't. Uh, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. No, God is a unique God. There are not other divine beings like him. But when the commandment talks about other gods, it's speaking of false idols. We see this explained in Deuteronomy 28, 36, when Moses is pronouncing curses on the disobedient. He says, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you shall set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. Other gods are associated with wood and stone. And this is further evidenced by the fact that the second commandment uh, prohibits worship of false idols, uh, specifically carved images. But we also can't take the words wood and stone to mean that false idols must come in the form of some miniature statue that you prostrate yourself towards. As Thomas Watson said, I'm afraid that upon examining this, he's talking about the first commandment, I'm afraid that upon examining this, we will realize that we have more idolaters among us than we were aware of. He goes on to say that if we trust anything or if we love anything more than God, it's to make it a God. And even here, don't mistake Watson's words as 
trying to create a priority, if we love anything more than God. He's not saying that it's okay to trust in your riches as long as you trust in God more. He's saying that to place the kind of love or trust that is due God to anything in this world is to prop it up as an idol before the face of God. And we see this exact problem in the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. This is, a, this is a man who knelt down before Christ and was willing to do almost anything to inherit eternal life. He told Jesus that he kept the Ten Commandments. And we know that's not entirely true. In verse 21, it says, Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the, the text tells us that he was deeply dismayed and that uh, at, at hearing these words, he went away grieving. And the problem wasn't that the rich young ruler had property, that he had wealth. The problem is that he placed his hope in his wealth. He said he kept the commandments, but he truly didn't. He broke the first commandment. He made wealth a God and he worshiped at that altar. And he was willing to worship God as long as he didn't have to stop worshiping at the altar of his wealth. And Jesus makes clear in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And this is the definitive call of God in the first commandment. We're to have no other gods before him. And the sad reality for all of us here is that we've created more idols and worshiped more false gods than we can possibly imagine. So this is an opportunity to examine ourselves. Have you inadvertently made things of this world into idols? Have you made idols of wealth and health or of children or parents? Have you made idols of wisdom or even moral living, fitness, food, you name it. There's so many things that we make idols of. John Calvin famously spoke of the infatuated proneness of mankind to idolatry. I like that that sentence, the infatuated proneness of mankind to idolatry. He's well known for saying that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. We, we can't help ourselves. We make idols of everything. And the call of the first commandment is to understand that we serve a unique God. We serve a, a, a personal God who in his loving kindness has definitively commanded that we have no other gods before him. I just want to close with this admonition from Thomas Watson. He said, that the first commandment calls us to retreat from our sin. Let it call us off from idolizing any creature. Let it lead us to renounce other gods and to cleave to the true God and his service. With that, let's pray. Father God, there truly is no God like you who rides through the heavens to our help, through the skies in your majesty, You, the eternal God, are our resting place and underneath our everlasting arms. God, we pray that as we examine ourselves, that as we hear the words that you have written for us, God, that we would recognize the false idols that we make in our lives. 
And that, God, we would repent and turn. And, God, that we would trust in you and you alone. That all of our hope would be in you. Father, we thank you for this congregation. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We pray, God, that as we go from here, our, our hearts would sing your praises. And, God, that we would worship you above all things. That we would uh, glorify your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.